Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Stuart Baines, Assistant Director of Community Outreach uh, here at the Library. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. It is our first Griffith Review conversation this year. Uh, we hope to have more. And I'm delighted to see how many new and returning visitors uh, I can see out there tonight. And for those of you who are returning, please note our plush new theatre. It's very lovely. The Griffith Review um, is a, a collaboration that the library is very pleased to be a part of uh, with our founding editor, uh, with the founding editor, Professor Julianne Schultz. We can always rely on these events to highlight issues of great significance, and it's a privilege that the library is able to play some small part in facilitating that conversation. The Griffith Review was established in 2003, and since then has been setting the agenda for current affairs discussions through its themed editions. Tonight's conversation will focus on edition 55, State of Hope, which explores the economic, social, environmental, and cultural challenges facing South Australia. We're very lucky tonight to be joined by Professor Julianne Schultz and contributing authors Angela Walcott, Professor Peter Stanley, Dr Chris Wallace and Amarita Marley. Dr Julianne Schultz is the founding editor of the Griffith Review and a professor at Griffith University's Centre for Cultural Research. Julianne has made a member of, was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2009 for her services to the community as a journalist, writer, editor and academic. She will chair this evening's discussion. Angela Woolacott is the Manning Clark Professor of History at the Australian National University. Her most recent book, Settler Society in the Australian Colonies, Self-Government and Imperial Culture, was shortlisted for the History Book Award in the 2015 Queensland Literary Awards. She is researching and writing a biography of Don Dunstan, supported by an Australian Research Council Discovery Grant. Professor Peter Stanley of the University of New South Wales, Canberra, is the author of 27 books, including Wyler at War, his recent titles include Lost Boys of Anzac and Bad Characters, both very good reads, which jointly won the Prime Minister's Prize for Australian History in 2011. Peter continues to be a supporter of our ongoing events program and is a great friend to the National Library. Dr Chris Wallace is a fellow at the National Centre of Biography's School of History, ANU, and a member of the Canberra Press Gallery. Her doctoral thesis was on political biography as political intervention. She is the author of several books, including Greer, Untamed Shrew, and The Private Don. Amarita Marley is a visiting fellow in the ANU Coral Bell School for Asia-Pacific Affairs. A historian of Southeast Asia, she is also secretary of the Asian Studies Association of Australia. In 2015, she convened Intercultural Adelaide, Cultural Adaptivity for the Asian uh, Century, in association with the Ninth International Convention of Asian Scholars. All of that was an incredible mouthful. So I ask you to please welcome our guests and I welcome you here to the National Library. Thank you. Um, it's a great uh, pleasure to be here again for the first of the uh, Griffith Review National Library uh, events for this year and I look forward to doing, doing some more later in the year. Um, I always really enjoy these conversations because they're, they're, they're able to pull together some of the you know, to really tease out some ideas that have been developed in, in the volume. Um, this edition of Griffith Review's State of Hope is the fourth that we've done with another university uh, collaborating partner. 
Um, I, I described this the other day to my vice-chancellor as us pickpocketing the other universities um, <laughs> to try um, and, and build that sort of support. We did one with the University of Tasmania, with Curtin University, Melbourne University, and now with, uh, with Flinders University. And I'm delighted that uh, Dr Patrick Allington from Flinders, who co-edited this edition, has been able to come over uh, for this event this evening. Um, I think what we've been trying to do with these themed um, place-based editions is to try and tease out some of the complexity and some of the elements that make places different. Um, there was a time, I think, in, in Australia where people were very much more defined by the state that they came from um, than, than I think is now the case. Um, um, but I still think there's something different in the DNA of people who come from a particular place that deserves to be, to be teased out some more. Um, I guess when we started planning this, we knew that South Australia would be in the news because obviously this year is going to be a very, very big, big year for South Australia. I mean, we didn't anticipate the uh, energy energy issues quite to the degree that they've they've been playing out. But certainly, with the closure of the car manufacturing plants and so on in in Adelaide this year, there'll be a lot of lot of attention on South Australia. I think in in the sort of public consciousness. So we, in a way, wanted to get in a bit ahead of that curve and really tease out both where, where the place has come from and where it might be going and what are some of the issues and what are some of the emotional resonances in that. So this panel that we've got tonight is really well equipped to explore some of those, addition, those, those, those themes. And I mean, one of the sort of starting points, I guess, is, is about coming and going. I mean, the creation of South Australia was a very deliberate project um, and it's been informed by very deliberate movements of people over a long, over a long period of time now. Um, so I'd I'm interested in each of your stories in that regard, um, and Angela, maybe starting with you. I mean, both in terms of what you've written about, in terms of Dunstan's sort of movement back and forth, but also in your own sort of, you know, your own connections with the place. Thanks, Julianne. Uh, well, I was delighted to be invited to contribute to this this volume um, as a proud South Australian, and I think um, very much shaped by having been born and brought up in South Australia, it was fun to think about the challenges facing South Australia now, the nature of South Australia, and also how South Australia does have, I think, um, a sense of its own exceptionalism. Uh, people talk about American exceptionalism in terms of history, but I think that we can make a case that South Australia has a sense of its own exceptionalism, much of which, of course, is mythological. Um, but um, <laughs> South Australians, I think, do play with it the, the sense of South Australian history in drawing on current um, responses to political issues in South Australia. So I think South Australia is very much shaped by the comings and goings, the early comings and goings, and more recent comings and goings. Um, I was saying to Julianne earlier that my own um, history in South Australia goes back to the 1840s. My, on both sides of the family, my uh, uh, antecedents were 19th century arrivals in South Australia, the Woolacotts, as early as the 1840s, it was a Woolacott who drove the bullock dray that took the first steam engine to the copper mines at Burra. So <laughs> there's a long family connection to Burra and that part of South Australia. Um, with Dunstan, I was, uh, because I'm working on a biography of Dunstan, it was fantastic to have a chance to do a, a piece on him for this collection. And I think in many ways Dunstan exemplifies the complexities of the comings and goings, partly his own sense of the history of South Australia. Um, I mention in my essay here that he very deliberately titled his political memoirs Felicia, drawing on one of the first um, 
considered names for South Australia, one of the names that Jeremy Bentham in the early 1830s considered possible for South Australia to, to um, signify a South Australia's promise that it would be um, a very fortunate kind of place. Um, so Dunstan was very conscious of that. Um, Dunstan, who of course faced a great deal of opposition to his politics and his career in the 70s, one of the things that was often um, suggested by his political opponents with varying degrees of explicitness were the suggestions that perhaps he was racially mixed, you know, that he was, there was this term that was actually used against him in 1956, actually, it was first used against him by his political opponents, that he was, quote-unquote, a Melanesian half-caste orphan bastard. And there's always this, you know, it's somehow it's always hung around, that that questioning about his antecedents. His, his um, family on both sides were South Australian way back, Cornish mostly. So he too had that strong sense of South Australian history. And yet, as I argue in my essay, he was very much shaped by the fact that he was born and grew up in Fiji. His parents, both thoroughly South Australian, uh, had moved to Fiji because of his father taking a job there as a merchant, running a store. Dunstan was born and brought up there, um, did much of his education there, but actually kept going back and forth to South Australia for parts of his education and then for his career, although the first part of his legal career was in Fiji. So Fiji was hugely um, important in shaping him. So I suggest in my essay that it was actually growing up under British colonialism in Fiji with the powerful racial stratifications in a household with servants, Fijian and Indian servants, and observing uh, the colonial racial hierarchies all around him, uh, the treatment of Fijians, but also very much the treatment of Indians that shaped his sense of racial injustice, which then fed into his commitment to um, anti-discrimination in South Australia and um, influ influenced also his, his pioneering legislative initiatives in the 1960s for Aboriginal land rights. Why don't I stop there? No, that's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by how in that experience that Dunstan had in... Fiji, in your essay, you've, you've made the argument in a sense that, that the, the pr his progressiveness came as a reaction to what he observed. And I guess the same point could be made about some of the early ideas in the establishment of the state itself, that it was, you know, it was a reaction to a, to a time. Um, well, the early founders of South Australia, I think, had a, you know, it was a Wakefieldian vision with a, a particular notion of a kind of settler colony to be based on particular plans. Mm. Um, so, I'm not sure that it was reacting so much to other things happening in the empire, but it was part of the, you know, the big settler explosion mm. of settlers from Britain going around the mm. globe and um, Wakefield's vision of um, schemes of land ownership and, and actually political rights as well that would be beneficial yes. for settlers. Yeah. So, the, mm. the reform, the, that whole reform movement and those political rights thing, which, which sort of coloured the early, the early days. Absolutely. Yeah. And... South Australians um, of the 19th century had that strong sense of the importance of those foundations, mm. even though, of course, it was very... South Australia's history in the 19th century was checkered, it was Absolutely. up and down. Mm. And, of course, the idea... South Australians loved to say, well, there were no convicts, but actually, you know, the borders, you know, almost didn't exist, and there were convicts yeah. very quickly who came across from the eastern colonies, so <laughs> it yeah. was not reality. It was a way of hiding out. Um, Chris, your, your upbringing was very much as a product of growing up in that sort of Dunstan reform era, which is what you've, 
you've written about. So your family moved from yes, from Sydney to South Australia. Two, two yeah. kinds of migrants, international and international. Mm. Mm. And international uh, migration to South Australia is actually quite a feature, like my pal here from Wyala, mm. when he speaks, you'll notice just a very slight English accent, I think. <laughs> um, in fact, my family shifted there in 1962 and we were from Sydney, and mm. Adelaide is the kind of place you've got to be there five generations before you're a local. So we were joking earlier, you know, before the mics were turned on, you know, this is a real South Australian, 1840s. Uh, Julianne has some South Australian relatives going back to 1900. She's a blow-in. Um, <laughs> and the Peter Stanleys, and in fact, the Julia Gillards of the world, uh, we all turned up in South Australia, and we were, we were kind of outsider insiders who happened to lobby in at this most extraordinary moment, kind of the second Enlightenment experiment period that South Australia happened to, to, to experience. Most mm. places don't ever have a single Enlightenment experience, but <laughs> um, back then, that Wakefieldian vision for South Australia, I don't think many South Australians now appreciate just how unique and profound that was as an international experiment. Mm. Um, it didn't make it any better for the local Indigenous population, of course, but... It was a remarkable experiment that quickly became, I think, quite conservative because South Australia is so tremendously isolated. There's really so little rationale for, us, it, for its existence apart from the wine industry. Yet people like me and you and the Gillards uh, blew in when, in fact, a conservative state premier, Tom Playford, decided in many cases literally to buy economic development for this place that had really no economic diversity at all and basically, you know, through industry policy, plonked in car factories, plonked in a refinery, plonked in lots of um, middle industry, and literally boatload after boatload of migrant migrants turned up, poured out, and were, you know, living in migrant housing developments, housing trust developments, that were literally thrown up hundreds of houses at a time around these new industrial areas. Um, interestingly, by... A, mostly by a, a company that, in fact, was German and had built a lot of post-war uh, recovery, reconstruction dwellings in, in Germany. So mm. those German links, mm. Schultz, you know, a bit of a telltale sign there, drive up the Barossa. Even as a kid, I'd hear German spoken in the street. Mm. But, you know, it was an amazing time because the state was so effective. Even just prior to Dunstan, there was a well-funded incredibly robust, high-quality education system. Um, there was a great health system. The state worked. It had a beautiful environment, stunning quality of life, an incredible wine industry, the most remarkable produce even then. And then Don Dunstan happened, and it was a revelation. You know, he was the great uh, modern Enlightenment man, Renaissance man of, of, uh, of South Australia, and we were electrified. Suddenly this place that would, had really become quite quickly, historically, the arse end of nowhere, literally, was the absolutely cool place to be. And the entire kind of East Coast intelligentsia decamped, uh, went, to, went to hang out with Wall Cherry's drama crew at um, Flinders and make art with Viv Bins and you know, make South Australian Film Corporation with Zooming. And, and Don Dunstan, it, it was, he was just incredible. We all felt like we were in the centre of the universe uh, briefly, I think I define Adelaide's golden <laughs> age in, in my pieces, starting when the Beatles arrived and ending when Don Dunstan had his uh, dressing down uh, resignation press conference. But in between was the most remarkable period of 
enlightened policy, cultural excitement, proper funding of public facilities, uh, exciting leadership. You know, this guy didn't care that people were calling him uh, potentially, you know, Asian. They didn't care. He didn't care half the town was saying he was gay behind the scenes. He was just going out and living, uh, wearing pink hot shorts, running up the, the steps of Parliament, sitting on the back of an elephant at the zoo, reciting poetry, dancing on stage at the end of Hair. He was living, and as a result, we were living, and it was a tremendous, exciting, beautiful shock for South Australia, which, after Don went, then kind of slumped back into its... Torpor. Torpor. Mm. Um, so... Good times, and it's funny when my piece went up, a lot of the reaction I was getting was uh, people commenting how significant a political leader could be in individual lives mm -hmm. as an inspiration to appreciate and live difference, mm. to actually animate your life by example. Mm. And I think if there's a single gap in our current polity, nationally and internationally, it's kind of Don Dunstan's to make us get off our ass and live. Thank you. Now, Peter, do you want to reflect on Wyala now, or will we, do you want us to stick to what we, we, we agreed earlier and you go last? Oh, I'm happy to go last. You're yeah. happy to go last. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, and Rita, in terms of um, your study of, of more recent migrants um, to South Australia and your work in that sort of multicultural space, I mean, how much do you think the legacy that Chris has been talking about is still present and, and meaningful in, in the lives of, of people there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's present and meaningful in two ways. I mean, one way is just the pride that people feel uh, in, that, in that time uh, and in, in the reforms led by Dunstan. Um, and actually another is in the way some of that, some of those reforms have calcified. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, the way in which South Australia, and in fact the nation, um, operates multicultural policy is very much from the era of Don Dunstan. Mm -hmm. um, it's now 2017. Um, and, you know, even in terms of my own comings and goings to South Australia, I mean, talk about five generations being a blow in, try five years. Um, <laughs> so I actually moved to South Australia in 2011. Uh, I am from Canberra, um, spent you know, a couple of decades here, moved to South Australia to, to sort of, you know, do work in this field. Um, and, you know, have been nursing this sort of project um, on interculturality, um, as, uh, as the Premier was calling it. So it was basically an initiative of the Premier's department. Uh, I was tapped on the shoulder, I was working at the Uni of South Australia, um, to begin uh, a project on, you know, maybe there are new ways to actually sort of do multiculturalism as a, as a nation that's increasingly integrated with Asia, um, whose population is increasingly Asian, um, and that's actually very evident to anybody walking down the street, whose economy is increasingly reliant on international students, uh, on immigration to prop up the housing market, um, all that kind of thing. So is there actually a way of doing these things better that perhaps move on from some of the, um, some of the methods that were developed in basically the 70s and 80s? Um, and so my story is of, um, you know, both working on that project, uh, but also kind of experiencing some of the ways in which these structures uh, actually reach out to me as, a, as an Asian person uh, living in, in South Australia. So I tell the story in my essay of um, being approached by my local member, Kate Ellis, uh, via the letterbox. Um, and she's written to me, she, she wrote to me uh, in Hindi, hoping to hopefully, I suppose, you know, activate me as a, as a member of, a, of an Indian community that she must have imagined that I was a part of. Um, you know, I don't come from India, I wasn't born there, I've never lived there, I have been there. Um, and I suppose I am Indian in some broad, you know, diasporic, generational way, um, you know, but to receive a letter in the mail after 30 years living in Australia, and I speak English as a first language, um, so to receive that letter, you know, trying to sort of reach out to me in Hindi, uh, 
was very strange, made me angry, I've got to say. So mm -hmm. I, I received it, uh, you know, the day before election day and the next day I went to vote and I was just mad as hell, so mad, I can't tell you how mad. Not only because I'd been racially profiled, uh, but also because I'd been poorly racially profiled. Um, and I suppose this really helped me to understand uh, just how much the practice of the state constructing communities that are convenient to it uh, is really now starting to get in the way of um, our interactions with the Asian region, our interactions with ourselves and as, as an Australian community that is, you know, so diverse now. You know, people are very proud of saying, and, and governments, government ministers will, will love to get up and say there are more than 200 uh, cultural groups living in Australia now, you know, 40 years on from the collapse of white Australia or the abolition of white Australia. Um, but the ways in which uh, governments relate to these groups uh, can actually be profoundly alienating, especially if you're a bit of a hybrid, you're a bit different, you you know, sort of got a long, a long history of migration. Um, uh, you know, it can be can be very difficult indeed. Mm -hmm. So I suppose just reflecting on that Dunstan time when it was, you know, the the height of uh, innovation to be talking about multicultural policy uh, and to be bringing it in, um, and now reflecting on just how some of those structures actually get in the way of doing multiculturalism better. Um, has been for me the experience of living in, living in South Australia. Mm. So, you know, I hear a lot about its past that people have so much pride in. Um, I haven't experienced it. Mm. Um, and uh, I actually had never really even thought about Don Dunstan. I probably heard his name, but I had ne never thought about him mm. before getting mm. there. Mm. But you see, you know, you feel this sense of pride. Um, but of course, in South Australia, just as across the rest of the nation, uh, it is actually quite difficult to, to get anything you know, any sort of political reform through. Uh, even if you asked for your advice, sometimes mm. uh, it isn't taken and you, you can't uh, get worried about that. Mm. You just have to sort of do it anyway. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I want to come back to that discussion around racism um, a little bit later, but first I'd just like to draw Peter in. Um, I mean, that Rome Red is just described as constructing communities that are useful to the state at the mm -hmm. time. I mean, that's very much your experience, isn't yeah, it, in terms that, of that the That practically Wyala. defines Wyala. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, for those who haven't read the issue, uh, I wrote an, an essay about my experience of living in Wyala. We arrived as migrants exactly 50 years ago. Um, can, I, and can I ask, uh, we've got several former South Australians here. How many former South Australians are in the audience? Hands up. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Look at that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Keep South Australian up. mafia. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your hand up if you've been to Wyala. Wow. No. Keep your hand up if you lived in Wyala. <laughs> ah, okay, that's very interesting. A place nobody goes to. <laughs> Except that thousands of people did. We yeah. You asked about yeah. migration, yeah. internal migration. Lots of Australians, South Australians, people from the Air Peninsula, Mid-North, went to live in Wyala when it boomed in the Second World War, again created by the state. Mm -hmm. And lots of people from other parts of Australia and from overseas, especially Britain, went to Wyala when it boomed again in the 1960s. Mm. Uh, the issue is called State of Hope, and as soon as I saw those words, and you put up a prospectus, for some contrarian reason, I thought of Wyler, because Wyler is a place most people, former South Australians, don't associate with the word hope. Mm. They mm. associate it with words like awful, hot, dusty, <laughs> despair, <laughs> uh, you know, terrible place to go, um, which is not the way people who, who stay in Wyler feel about it. Mm. So it's a, it's a curiously, like South Australia's mm. creation, it's a curiously artificial mm. construction mm. because it's a, a, a place that should never perhaps have existed. Mm. You know, its environment is, was pristine but has now been completely uh, buggered by industry which, which affects and hurts the people who live there. So in lots of ways, Wyler is the paradigm mm. for the sorts of issues mm. that, the issue that, the, mm. that the edition talks about. 
So, yeah, we could, and those who, former South Australians here, might want to chip into this discussion and talk about the, the way in which they feel about the state of hope. The state, can I point out, that they left. I'm interested in that, you describing your SAP, that, the, that you know, the excitement of arriving and the sort of, you know, the sense of possibility and mm. the, the blue skies and, you know, the, you know, the promise of a lifestyle and so on. And then you describe the process by which that lifestyle was degraded by the very environment in, in which people came. Um, mm. I mean, was there a sense amongst, you know, you, you're, you've still got family who lives there, I mean, of, of betrayal or, you know, of, you know, being sold a pup or was, did that optimism sort of continue for quite some time? The optimism still continues. Mm. Um, you know the story, while it boomed and then they closed the shipyard, BHP closed the shipyard, and the town's been in a steady decline since 1978. And one of the things that I reflect on in the, the article, the essay, is that there is a persistent and inexplicable sense of optimism. Mm. And it occurred to me that that comes perhaps from the fact of, again, people who moved to this place with an aspiration to live in a place that, that is different to where they came from. Mm. In our case, is different to rainy old Liverpool. It never mm. rained in Wyla. Mm. My mum loved it. Um, <laughs> and a place where they can create a new future and they can shape their own future. Mm. And that, again, keys in with the idea mm. of state of hope. Mm. And it goes right back to the idea of the community that South Australia, you know, the visionary idea that the founders had. So, curiously, and I spoke to the, to the mayor of Wyler, the, the, the old mayor of Wyler died last year, and there were seven people who wanted his job. Mm. This is a town that's dying, and yet seven people have got a vision to create a new future for Wyler. Mm. And I mm. spoke to the mayor, and she, and she spoke on, because mm. of the mm. Griffith Review mm. issue, she spoke on ABC Sunday Extra, and, and she is absolutely committed to the future of the place, mm. and mm. she's not the only one there either. Mm. Mm. So it's a paradox. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, I mean, there's another piece in, in this collection by Michael Delaney about Port Augusta, mm. and it's a similar sort of thing in a way, I mean, it's sort of similar, it's similar towns in some Terrible sort. place, Port Augusta. <laughs> 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 um, but, but he talks about the process, and I mean, it's obviously topical now, but, but that, you know, when, as the sort of, the old coal mining sort of things were, you know, got rid of that, that as a source of generation, mm. and the move to a sort of renewable energy framework, and that the sense in the town was, that it was a place where energy was made, and it didn't actually matter how it was made, but what they did was they made energy. So it's mm. that same sort of, same mm. sort of sentiment to, yeah. to some degree. Mm. Is, that, is, is, there, is there something in that, that that you'd like to chip in on? Or you, uh, well, I guess just some reactions I've had to things that people have been saying. Um, you know, Chris was saying, you know, that after its early beginnings, South Australia became conservative and then the 70s were this wonderful time, which, of course, I think they were. But I actually think that South Australia has had this very uneven um, history of being going in and out of progressivism and conservatism. Mm -hmm. So, for example, around 1850, South Australia was very progressive in terms of uh, the relationship between church and state. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, made reforms that meant that there, were, there was a whole plethora of churches. The reason South Adelaide is called the city of churches is not because there are lots of them physically, although mm. there are, but it's actually because there was this uh, flourishing of many different kinds of churches. There was a freedom of religion, which was considered very important, of course, mm. related mm. to the mm. Germans. Mm. The 1890s, South Australia was, you know, the first colony in Australia to enfranchise women and so forth. So, mm. you know, again, there was this moment of South Australia being very proudly uh, conscious of being progressive and, and making reforms that other colonies or states hadn't yet made. 
banning plastic bags before other states in Australia, you know, renewables. I mean, I think that South Australia actually, obviously you can tell I'm a proud South Australian, but I actually think that there's been this tension between progressivism and conservatism. And actually one of the things I think, seeing you two sitting there, and one of the things I picked out of your two essays was you talk about living in housing trust homes mm. as mm. migrants, mm. or you know, yeah. intranational Inter and international yeah. migrants. Mm. Mm -hmm. And of course the housing trust was the first, I believe, public housing agency in Australia. The, it was mm. um, 1936, South mm. Australia set up the Housing Trust, hugely important. Mm. Tom Playford, a conservative mm. premier, and yet under yeah. him, the Housing Trust mushroomed enormously. And Playford, of course, as Chris has written about uh, in much of her journalism, like her piece on Julie Bishop, you know, this complicated politics of conservatism yep. that could actually support mm public agencies like a housing trust and an electricity trust and so forth. What, what you've said then is incredibly important because one must distinguish between the conservative tenor of many, much, many periods in South Australia from political conservatism. Because the truth is South Australian non-Labour people are historically and in a deeply continuing sense the most small small-l mm -hmm. liberal progressive non-labor people in Australia mm -hmm. and you know putting Corey Bernardi aside <laughs> please which I know we'd all love to do in a fuller sense than I'm saying it now um, the, the fact that the liberal and country league in South Australia had a wonderful kind of you know for conservatives you know bless oblige a, a paternalism about how they ran the state as expressed in things like Playford's industry policy, it was a completely different kind of political tenor to non-Labor politics in the rest of Australia. And, you know, I'm not sure anyone's fully explored why that is, and I suspect the Enlightenment experiment roots of South Australia is, is just so woven so deeply into South Australian DNA that even if you're a Liberal, my God, you're, you're just not one of those nasty pasties that we seem to get in the rest of Australia I quite think, so much. I think one of the other elements in that, I mean, because obviously the, there's the, the sort of British Enlightenment group early on and then, as, as Angela said, the, the waves that's come through. But one of the other really significant groups in South Australia was, was that German set, settlement. And there's a tendency to say, oh, it was sort of people who were, you know, land traders or people who were escaping religious persecution, and that's all true. But... Um, the other big group of the sort of German migrants during the second half of the 19th century were people who were coming, who were quite intellectual. So you had people who were leaving Germany because they thought that there would never be a constitution, constitutionally bound German state. And so they came and they arrived with, you know, very progressive ideas about the way the state should work, how the universities should work, you know, um, a, a sort of a, a secular liberal society to some degree from that period. Um, and so they were there as a, as a quite progressive force um, in South Australian politics through the sort of 19th century until that until big internment that happens in the First World mm. War. And then that other strand of progressivism, which is there, they weren't all progressives, I'm not saying that, but, but that other strand got mm. closed down, you know, very effectively mm. with then that sort of mass deportation of Germans at the end of the First World War. Mm. So the 6,000 people who were sent, you know, over five or six years after the war, sent back to Germany. So oh, it was a way of shutting down a sort of yeah. a, another strand. That's right. Mm. Sorry, that's, that's, not, not, that's not written in this book. But look, <laughs> your story about the Reform Club and the street yeah. names, you've got to tell that. 
I don't know that I can remember it. <laughs> well, um, well, yeah, go I mean, in, in, in Julianne's introductory essay, you know, the Reform Club in London, the great uh, hotbed of small L liberal progressive, you know, enlightenment thinking in London, uh, I think 90% of Adelaide's original street names are, are named after members of the Reform Club in London. Mm. I mean, we don't actually fully understand, even South Australians don't understand, yeah. the DNA of that town yeah. and how it's played out through Australian politics. Yeah. It's incredibly yeah. interesting. Yeah. Actually, Mike, I, Mike Rand told me that story. He said, oh, I said, oh, where are you staying? He said, oh, well, when I'm in London, I'd love to stay in the Reform Club. I said, oh, that's nice. It's a nice place. You know, they've seen the films. You know, I've actually been there. Said, you know, they filmed Harry Potter, one, you know, not Harry Potter, one of the other movies where they needed that grand sort of club. And he says, oh, yes. He said, oh, I said, I would never get in. They'll never let me in. And, and somebody said, to, and, and Rand said, oh, but somebody said to me, if you just say that you're the Premier of South Australia, they'll make a special place for you. Because as you go down the stairs, every one of them is a photo of the people whose streets are, you know, the streets of, of central Adelaide. And that's so how it happens. Um, one of the things, though, that, that, that sort of I'm interested in this is that sort of, the, the, the sort of racism that plays out in different ways. Um, and... Um, and that's between settlers, but also in terms of relations with Indigenous people. Um, so there are some good examples of the sort of early quite progressive policies in relation to Indigenous people in terms of giving land grants and so on. But you know they short-lived come back. Um, but Chris, you said in your in your in your piece, and, and I know you said this in other forums, that the the racism that you experienced was against the English. You know, the, yeah. that there was a sort of bias against yes, the English. Our, our housing trust street was absolutely fantastic. There was my parents, my two brothers, and, and me, and across the road was a a German family. He'd been a Luftwaffe pilot in the war. His wife was an Austrian opera singer. Uh, next door was an, an Aboriginal teacher and her car salesman husband, the local copper and his family were, were the next house along. You know, there was this great big jumble of fantastically interesting people, but we were swamped with these massive boatloads of U-lot. Mm. And, and, you know, you, it, it, it gave me a different slant on different insights into racism that perhaps other people have had because, you know, all of us, the, the Aboriginal woman next door, the ex-Luftwaffe pilot, you know, we all just felt swamped by 10-pound poms. So there was no racism other than to you because you were so dominant. In my year 12 class, there were 38 kids and 35 of them were English. And, of course, it was terribly difficult for us to maintain any racism because they all ended up being our mates. And that, again, was a, a, mm. a nice lesson about, you know, being in the hood. Mm. Um, mm. But Adelaide is so intensely English still. I think the seat of Kingston which is where the refinery and the old car factories were, is the most intensely English seat in Australia. Mm. Um, it's very, very, very English. So we should talk about that yeah. and, uh, and, and bring in other migrants. Uh, because while I, I, people sometimes say I have a, an English accent, and if I do, it's because I hardly met any Australians until I came to university when I was 18, mm. while I was full of English migrants. Mm. Uh, they all had different accents, but anyway. The, but I'd like to know what, what's happened, because the, 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 the British weren't the last wave of migrants to, Australia, to South Australia. There have been mm. many others. Mm. And in, in Wyla, one of the ways Wyla's maintained its buoyancy is by welcoming, I think that's the right word, successive waves of Indo-Chinese and Sudanese uh, migrants, South, South American migrants. Mm. So what's happened to that Englishness 
in the in the context of of a multicultural society now. So, you know, I mean, has that diluted the DNA? We, we got saved. The biggest thing that happened in a culinary sense in Adelaide in, 19, in my local area, Christie's Beach, in 1974, was a Chinese restaurant opened up. Fantastic. And for a really cosmopolitan night out before that, we had to go into Heinley Street to an Italian restaurant with checkered cloths. Incredible. Um, basically, you know, getting back to Dunstan, Dunstan was from Norwood. Norwood was the home of Italian migrants. Suddenly it was cool to be multicultural in Adelaide. You know, mm. one guy changed at a stroke mm. what was acceptable and exciting in Adelaide. And suddenly, you know, everybody kind of came out of the woodwork and... South Australia developed a complex, interesting food culture. Okay, is it still cool to be multicultural in Adelaide? Yeah, and that's yes. my question to you. I mean, yeah. you, you know, and it's sort of you talk about that thing of having to take your multicultural self with you. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I suppose there's, there's multiple sort of ways of, of looking at that. I think, um, I mean, I don't know if I've experienced a particularly racist culture in South Australia. I don't think anyone's struggling too much. Um, with the fact that there are all sorts of new migrants or, or different or non-white migrants, let's put it that way, um, living in South Australia now. I do think there is a terrible amount of pressure on migrants, though, to actually stay in South Australia. Um, and, in fact, there's a lot of discussion about how, uh, try as the state might, it just can't retain uh, new migrants. So people will come in, and I think they're given five extra points or something, uh, you know, to, to choose Adelaide uh, uh, over other cities. Uh, and what they'll end up doing is basically you know, turn up, eke out in existence for as long as they can, unable to find proper jobs. They're underemployed, just like many other South Australians are. Um, and then, you know, after their two years or whatever the rule is, after that time is up, they'll pack up and head to Melbourne or Sydney. Um, and so there's a very uh, kind of complicated discussion about how much South Australia needs migrants and how hard it has to work to keep them. Uh, and I think, you know, there's all sorts of moves then to, you know, increase the number of international students um, and, and make arguments to the public um, that, you know, each student creates 1.25 jobs. Um, I mean, you could counter that 1.25 jobs for one extra person is not a very good ratio. Mm. Um, but all the same, it's all the ratio they've got. Uh, and so this, mm. you know, there's this pressure, pressure to come, pressure to stay. Uh, and that is, I think, a little bit... It's a little bit difficult to be... Uh, asked to be part of a, a state-building project that isn't really working for lots of people. Mm. Um, and so why then, as a newcomer, should you sort of feel that pressure on you? Um, so that's, I think, one of the issues. Do you think the reason it's not working, the reasons are economic or cultural or both? Uh, reflecting on the way the place works, as far as I can tell, it is very, very difficult to, to make friends. Mm. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be a new migrant to feel like that. So when I arrived in South Australia, the first thing that people would ask me, I mean, I must, it must have changed since, but they would ask me, why is your diction like that where you're from? Um, and it wouldn't be, you know, where in Asia are you from? Um, it would be more like, you know, are you a newsreader sort of thing. I actually had somebody say to me in a bar, you know, are you a newsreader? Um, and so it can be very difficult for people to... I hope you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said, you know, in a past life I was a newsreader, but I, I think I just said, oh, actually, I'm from Canberra, you know, I don't, don't remember what to say. <laughs> they're not so, from your job, were they? <laughs> yeah, well, they should have. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, for me, as far as I can tell, the, the pressure is a different sort of pressure. It's a pressure to really love it. Um, and if you don't love it, that's a bit hard. It's mm. a bit hard to respond to South Australians and say, actually, I don't love your place. Uh, I live here, it's fine, mm. it's not a problem. I'm so pleased you said that. Um, but I, I, I don't <laughs> love South <laughs> Australia. <laughs> and it must be so much harder um, if you don't speak English as your first language, um, if you are 
having a hard time getting work, if your name's Muhammad or something like that, you know, and you've got to put in for 65 jobs just to get one interview or whatever the statistic is um, that was recently in the, in the media. Um, I mean, all that stuff must be so much harder. Uh, and then to be kind of, uh, you know, to, to have it demanded of you that you love the place. Uh, I think that's a little bit tough. So, mm. I mean, that's not really a discussion of racism, I suppose. It's a discussion of different kinds of, of, of pressures. And, and, you know, even the discussion in, in this state about, you know, engaging Asia, you know, we're going to grow our export markets, we're going to go around sourcing investment, we're going to have all these, uh, you know, delegations go here and there, and the government's going to lead them, and we're going to help you know, connect people uh, with Asian markets and all that. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if they work. Maybe they do and maybe they don't. Um, but I think there is just so very much pressure um, on, you know, members of these Asian communities that are being constructed, uh, for example, that, to yeah. do some of that work for the state. As um, part of the bigger issue that confronts every South Australian, because, you know, you keep coming back to this question in the history of South Australia. Why is it there? You mm. know, what is the rationale without subsidies for that city and you know, greater herb existing. It's so geographically challenged, mm. actually. Exactly. I mean, it is remote. It's not not as remote as Perth, but it is remote. Yeah. So this, you know, this pressure to love South Australia mm. is partly because South Australians do feel, mm. you know, geographically isolated. And pressure right. to build and it the, when, in fact, mm. you might not really want to build it. You might just think, oh well, this isn't really working. And the dryness. The dryness yeah. is a huge challenge. Mm. The just other thing is just in. I don't know about you guys, but in this discussion, it's really occurred to me why so many of us are in Canberra. Hmm. You know, idealistic, <laughs> idealistic planned conception, you know, very progressive, has to be subsidised, would you bugger off if you could, you know. <laughs> I mean, basically Canberra, in a way, is like Adelaide with proximity to Sydney, yeah. the snowfields on the coast. It's, it's kind of full of South Australians. There is an incredible South Australian yeah. mafia here. There is. Yeah. There is. Yeah. And, and that process of leaving, I mean, I think that that's something, I mean, you talk about it in relation to people who have relatively recently come... <clears throat> but you look at the demographics spread and, and that depletion of people in their sort of prime years, you know, from 25 to 40, is huge in South um, Australia. Mm. And that's, that mm. brings us back to the people who stay, mm. because the people in Wyler, again, mm. who are so positive and optimistic about the place are the people who haven't left. Mm. Wyler, I think I said once, is a very easy mm. place to leave. Mm. And the people who stay have this tremendous loyalty to it. And I think the same thing happens to South Australia. Um, my wife is a Scottish migrant, and we went to the Barossa Valley for the very first time. And I'm terrible to say this, but it, she, was, she was grossly disappointed because it wasn't nearly as um, magnificent. Where's the valley, she said. She comes from Scotland. It's big. So it's a big valley. <laughs> but there's a, the, the exceptionalism that Angela mentioned, I think there's a, a sort of expectation of loyalty that mm -hmm. South Australia, although it's dreary and dry and all the rest of it, people do feel a loyalty towards it. Do you not? But the other thing is, I don't know about you, but it doesn't matter what I do or where I live, the psychic landscape in my head is the Florio Peninsula and it always will be. When I die, when I close my eyes and die, I'll be seeing the hills of Wollonga. Mm. It's that impactful a landscape. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm very keen to draw, draw you in, but can I just say about the Barossa Valley, because mm. after we did this launch in Adelaide the other day, <coughs> um, my husband and I went up to the Barossa Valley, and I haven't been there for, you know, for a very long time. But having grown up in that sort of Lutheran church world, 
Um, and I remember as a child going there and there's the Tabor Lutheran Church and there's the St Paul's Lutheran Church and there's the Zion Lutheran Church and there's the Zion Subset Lutheran Church and there's the, uh, um, the Church of Peace over there. Like, you know, in this tiny area, you know, one after another, these big grand churches. And I had that sort of feeling, a bit like what you're saying, that I had this sort of memory, this sort of deeply embedded memory of thinking... There's that wonderful German line, Stadt Luft macht frei, city air makes you free. That I felt in this closed, tight space that you would never be free. You know, it was rich and it was prosperous and it was, mm. you know, people living comfortable lives, and mm. but it felt like you wanted to get away. And mm -hmm. I mean, how did it happen? I mean, it's probably 20, yeah. 30 years since I'd last been there. Um, mm. But it was something very deep in that, in that sort of emotional response to the, the tightness of yeah. the place. We yeah. are the escaped... <laughs> so I'm really keen to hear some of the escapes questions or com joining the conversation because I'm sure you've got interesting things to add and I'm, we don't need to dominate it from up here. There's somebody here with the microphones around. So. Uh, thanks. Um, a, a question if you could discuss uh, is South Australia suffers from many comparative disadvantages, everything's hard. Is that woven into what um, the attitudes of, or what creates the attitudes of South Australians and um, how much of that do you think played in Playford's mind when he bribed industries into existence mm. in the state? Well, I think stoicism is very much a part of the um, you know, the, the 19th century, you know, the culture of South Australia that goes back to the 19th century, you know, the, the attempts to establish farming. I mean, you know, clearly there are fertile regions in South Australia and um, Fluoro and the Adelaide Plains and the southeast and so forth. But, you know, those desperate attempts to go, you know, to go further, you know, the goiter line that was set up, you know, beyond which there isn't rain. And, in fact, there's a wonderful photo essay um, in, the, in the book that talks about this, you know, with the photos of abandoned stone, um, small stone homesteads. And that is such a part of the South Australian experience, that battle against the, um, the really inhospitable conditions. And it's back to Dunstan, it actually was part of his family history. His grandfather killed himself because he was trying to farm in a, you know, up north where it was too dry. And uh, when Dunstan's father was a small child, he just killed himself, left five kids his widow had to come back to Adelaide, and you know, um, so that was that. What Dunstan actually talks about that in one of his books. He mm. was you know, very aware of that part mm. of his family history, mm. and it is it is very much a part of the South Australian that kind of pioneering sense. Mm. It's part of the older South Australian culture, and of course, the reality of the geographical challenge is still so much a part of South Australia. Of course, it's part of why renewable energy is attractive to South Australia because you know there is wind and <laughs> so forth. Mm. Mm. Sorry, I keep bringing Wyler in, don't I? But um, the the um, the aspirations that, that the two waves of settlers in Wyler brought with them, especially the first, the, the 1940s, they were people from the land, and I think their aspirations mm. were tremendously modest, if that's not a paradoxical contradiction, that they, they wanted security and a house, maybe a small trust house. They, mm. they didn't want riches, they didn't want mm. anything grand, and they were able to attain that modest expectation. So it possibly does come back to the, the harshness of the environment, mm. maybe. 
just one writer about Playford. It's a complete mystery. I mean, worth one of us going back and having a closer look at what was in Playford's head because he was a, an Adelaide Hills cherry farmer and he had his cherry stand at Adelaide Market next door to Julie Bishop, Bishop's father's cherry stand. He was also a, an Adelaide Hills cherry farmer. And why a South Australian Adelaide Hills cherry farmer should suddenly become the national champion of interventionist, highly subsidised industry policy <laughs> to create a huge manufacturing base and support massive migration. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually one of the kind of notable events of mid-20th century mm. Australian politics. Mm. And I don't have the answer. Frank's here. Do you, do you know why that happened, Frank? True. What, what, what was the answer with McEwen? Okay, question on notice. Thank you for your panel. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, I'm, uh, my family left South Australia in 1850, um, so for the Victorian goldfields. So um, good move. I, but <laughs> but I can claim to have an Adelaide street named after my family, <laughs> and they weren't mm. anything to do with the Reform Club in in uh, London. Um, so I just, uh, uh, what lessons does South Australia have for the rest of us, I think is the question that comes mm. out of this collection very strongly. And particularly, I, I would like to hear more about the alternatives to two-party politics, which mm. seem to me to be um, very much of the rich heritage of South Australia, Xenophon now, mm. CHIP. Um, and also, I wonder about the German community and its relationship to the Gruens in the, in the original mm. 1970s mm. Um, and that, that sort of idea of third parties or smaller liberals who don't do what conservatives do now. Thank mm. you. Well, if Dennis Atkins had been able to join us and didn't, uh, was, who, was, who was meant to be a member of the panel, he would have been the perfect person to answer that, uh, that mm. question. But um, Chris or Angela? Yeah. Well, well, I think it goes back to that incredible tradition of smaller liberal liberals that makes it different from anywhere else in Australia and and also a tolerance for kind of maverick behavior you know Robin Millhouse mm -hmm. getting a government funded bicycle instead of an official car and you know I think it's a place where you can be ironically given it's so conservative a bit different and it's all right almost possibly the English eccentricity thing manifesting itself but it, it Things like the liberal movement and, you know, the Xenophon thing, they, they're not so attractive the closer you look. For example, Chris Pine told me the other night at China Plate, where I was accidentally next door to him, not deliberately <laughs> sitting with him, I hasten to add, um, that he survived in Sturt at the last election because he'd done a behind-the-scenes deal with Sarah Hanson-Young to shut out the Xenophon candidate. So there's an example of a minority party just doing the normal politics as usual behaviour. But yeah, God, if I could take that smaller liberal South Australian liberalism and infect every other conservative in Australia with it, again, putting Cory Bernardi aside. Um, Cory Bernardi and, family, and the family First as well, which is the other, the other, the other bit of the more conservative part of South yeah, Australia. That's, that's not, yeah, that's not confined to South Australia though, is no. it? No. But it um, goes out of that sort of religious fundamentalist stuff as well, doesn't it? If you look at why our politics in Australia has gone so wrong in recent years, it's because that hard, nasty, right, right, right uh, attitude has taken over the, the
the Conservatives. And if we had more South Australian smaller liberalism, since there has to be a change of government every now and then and have a Conservative one, God, I wish we could have more of it. I guess I would just chip in. I'm not sure that the third party phenomenon has been a long-standing phenomenon in South Australian history. I mean, for some, in some ways, for example, South Australia wasn't as affected by the split in the Labor Party, the DLP, as mm. much as New South Wales and Victoria mm. or Tasmania. So, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a huge issue in that significant period. Mm. I mean, it's clearly very much part of the scene now, but I'm not sure that it's really a long-standing part of South Australian political history. Mm. I mean, the Liberal movement and mm. others have mm. kind of been brief. And Xenophon is just increasingly looking like a Conservative. You rarely see him voting with Labor on anything, sadly. Um, yeah, there's a couple of other questions. Uh, person with the microphone. <laughs> Hi. Um, um, I grew up in Murray Bridge, uh, then down at Glenelg, was lucky enough to go to uh, Emmanuel College, Lutheran College, was in the first intake at Flinders. Mm. And um, uh, uh, it's interesting you haven't used the word Cinderella state. And, uh, and I always remember these things from school in the driest state in the driest continent. Um, uh, now with all the industry going in this if it's a global move or whatever, I don't know whether this is a fair question to ask the panel, this, uh, the, the roboticizing of work, um, uh, now that the employment is largely disappearing in terms of industry and that from South Australia, uh, have you talked about that at all, the panel, uh, with your state of hope? Do you see where um, the possibility of employment may come from for the state? Yeah. Um, it's a thing that John Spear from Flinders has addressed at some, in some length about the future of creating different sorts of jobs and how they might, how they might um, evolve, you know, with some assistance and, and, and organically. Um, um, I, but I think it's an area which is, you know, really going to take a lot of serious hard work over, over a long period of time to, to work through. I mean, the other bit of South Australia's economy, of course, is, is the mining industry. Um, and mining has been, you know, from earliest settlement, you know, from the Cornish, Cornish miners, you know, through to the whole sort of Bro uh, BHP, Brogan Hill um, experience, you know, through to the more, more recent, uh, the more recent mining history. Um, that's sitting there as, I don't say bedrock, but it's sitting there as a sort of the source of a lot of the state's wealth and, and sort of ongoing sort of momentum, um, and. The, one of the things that we've explored in, in this edition around that is, is how the failure to resolve native title agreements in those, those areas that have been generating so much of the state's wealth, um, that that's, that's stalled, um, which is sort of, at, you know, it's a bit like the ups and downs that we were talking about before, you know, that there's an intent, but the, the detail's not always worked through. Um, mm. Does anyone else want to comment on the work situation? And Marisha, is your well, I think I wanted to comment on both um, mm. the, the last two questions. So... I mean, in terms of work, I mean, you know, underemployment is just such a, a chronic problem in South Australia mm. that sometimes, you know, you get these um, clever uh, responses to it that actually, in their cleverness, reveal just how desperate they are. Um, and one example is the, the, the vibrant city culture. Um, you know, as I said before, I don't really love the place, uh, even though I don't mind it. Um, but one thing that really gets on my nerves is discussions of the vibrant city culture. <laughs> um, because very often what it is, it's about basically giving the underemployed a way to earn some cash. So, you know, for example, the food trucks. South Australia is so proud of its food trucks in the city. Um, and ultimately what it is, is people who can't earn enough of a wage, um, you know, setting up as small, as small traders. Um, 
you know, in Southeast Asia, they'd call these people hawkers, um, and and here they're called entrepreneurs. So there's there's a there's a lot of uh, I mean, of course, I don't mind that I can buy food from a food truck either. So on the one hand, you know, it's quite a pleasant thing. On the other, it actually does uh, sort of paper over some very very serious problems. And I think in terms of the political stuff, um, I mean, I don't know if it's always going to be good for the the xenophons of this world, but I think that underemployment uh, is linked to the rise of these. Uh, new political forces in a way that nobody's really all that happy to acknowledge. Um, so people will talk about unemployment, um, mm. but you know the, the eking out of existences uh, across. I mean, let's just talk about the nation, really. I mean, South Australia is, is a case in point, but there's there's an increasing kind of mm. you know uh, number of people who are trying to just piece together bits and pieces of work uh, enough to pay their bills, and you know there's a there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of desperation about all that that I think is feeding, um, you know, some of these new developments. Um, and I think that actually the audience for the people like Xenophon, I mean, it's it's, it's in a way good that there isn't a, a more racist Xenophon uh, in South Australia because I think the audience for for a less racist or more racist Xenophon uh, is there. It's mm. it's huge. Corey mm. Bernardi. Yeah. Corey Bernardi. Mm. I don't think he's a joke. Mm. Yeah. I don't think he's a joke, Carter. No. Mm. So we've got time for one more question. Yes. There was a person over here, but you've been walking in the opposite direction. <laughs> well, I should say that I'm one of these ex-South Australians. I had ancestry on my mother's side. They came out in 1839 or 1840 or something. You win the like prize. <laughs> 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 um, I, this is partly going back to some of the things talking about a couple of questions ago. One of the things that, um, well, I can remember from, from growing up there, this about the religious, there's a bit to do with multiculturalism, but the religious mix uh, from the 19th century, this, and you can still see it when I you know, lived there in the 1950s and 1960s, much higher proportion of non-conformist churches. And someone mentioned the diversity in the city of churches, but non-conformist uh, tradition from late 18th century, 19th century England, uh, tended, was a big lot of sort of social progressivism and, and so on. And, I, and I, obviously the Cornish miners, when they came out, they would have been, I think, mostly about Congregational Baptist Methodist. or something. Methodist, Methodist, Methodist they were. Yeah, I, yeah I, you know, more about the mix of the... Any, but that very strong in South Australia and, of course, a much lower proportion of Irish, people of Irish origin. And I think that was one of the things that does make it really distinctive. And I, I just wonder, do you think the also mm. particularly the non-conformists contribute to this sort of form of progressivism or the small L liberals because I think that is that, that's very strong in England from my knowledge of sort of social well, history. A case in point is Bob Hawke whose Cornish heritage both sides you know Methodist household boarded, born in border town absolutely classic. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, it was a quite, something like Methodist wasn't it? Congregational. 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 There you go. Close enough. Yes, the non-conformists were very much a part of the, the uh, sense of difference and reformism in 19th century South Australia. And you're absolutely right about the lower proportions of Irish and Catholic, and I think that continued to shape South Australia through the mid-20th century into the later 20th century, that sense of, um, I think, perhaps particular tensions between Protestants and Catholics because of the lower proportions mm. of Catholics. But, but you, Angela, referred to... The, the myths that South Australians cherish. And I would suggest, in response to your point, that South Australia has uh, 
a high proportion of ex-dissenters. You know, there are lots of people who have Methodism in their, in their family histories, but that doesn't mean they have Methodism in, or Uniting Church in their, in their lives. So South Australia, like the rest of Australia, is essentially post-Christian. One last while, a story. In 1973, there was something like nine or 12 nonconformist ministers in Wyla. Uh, that was before the creation of the Uniting Church in 1977. And now there's something like one. Now that tells you something about the uh, degree of faith among a, a city of 20,000 and declining. Um, but also perhaps something about the spiritual needs of a city of that size, which maybe aren't being met. So South Australia may cherish its non uh, conformist background, but whether it actually lives it today is another question. Mm. Mm. So. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do have to bring it all to an end here, but I think you'll all agree that the conversation deserves to go on. Um, and you might be surprised it can go on. At the end of proceedings, if you go up the stairs, you can buy the book <laughs> in the bookshop. Um, we have 10% discount for anyone here tonight, um, and of course, any purchase you make goes to support your national library. Um, I'd like to, to thank you, Julianne, for your continued support and bringing the, the Griffith Review to the library and this fantastic um, connection and the, the fantastic conversations we get out of this. It's great um, to be a partner with you in this. We have an, a very exciting program of events coming up here at the library, so pick up some brochures on your way out. Um, there are many, including another great one next week. So please, we'd love to see you um, come along. Um, I would just like to thank you and, and hopefully you can all join me in thanking our panel tonight and I hope to see you all here again. Thank you.